Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. On the Logistics of Logistics, I talk to experts in logistics and transportation, warehousing, fulfillment, supply chain, and of course, technology. And during these interviews, I'm always the one asking the dumb questions. I ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. Today's topic is leading a logistics biz turnaround with my friend, Harry Draypush. Harry is the chief executive officer of Amware Fulfillment, a Stasi company. Those are both super companies. Harry has over 30 years as a leading logistics industry executive, and he has led a number of logistics business turnarounds. Amware and Stasi, they're killing it, but there are a lot of other logistics companies right now that are struggling, which is why you should check out my conversation with Harry. How's it going, Harry? Going great, Joe. I really appreciate the opportunity to have the conversation and talk about my favorite subject. All right. All right. Harry, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today. All right. I'm Harry Drapush. I'm the CEO of Amware Logistics, and it's, it is now part of the Stasi Group. They purchased us at the end of February of this year. So we're part of a global entity now that's approaching a billion dollars. I am in the desert of Arizona, Santan Valley, about 40 miles southeast of the metropolis of Phoenix. Very nice. Very nice. So now, how, how many locations does Amware have? Here in the States, in the United States, we have 18 locations. We service all the major metro areas. A lot of it obviously was expansion over the last five, six years, growing at a very nice pace, controlled, but really it's been a great ride and a great experience in, in getting us to where we are today. So one of the things that comes up every once in a while on my podcast is 15 years ago, somebody said, where should I put my warehouse? They would say, my warehouse, if you won. And, they, and I think the conventional wisdom then was somewhere in Indiana, near Indianapolis, because you can reach this many people in one day and this many people in two days. It was hit most of the people in one day. And those days seem like 100 years ago. But I do know this, there's still a lot of warehousing companies with one location. And I guess it, <laughs> I don't know how that works in the same day, next day world. Everything can work in the next day world if you've got an unlimited pocketbook, right? If you're willing to pay for overnight service, you can get almost anywhere on the globe, actually. But it doesn't work out well. Interesting about Indianapolis, yes, that was 15 years ago. Everybody who did a network survey it would always pop up in Indianapolis, maybe a little bit closer to Chicago, yep. maybe a little further south of that point. The problem is, unless you've got a product that you want to sell to everybody in the United States, which very few people have, you know, being in Indianapolis won't necessarily serve it. And 15 years in logistics, it's like dog years. One year seems to, it has what used to take seven years, happens in one year today. I started in logistics in 1980 in trucking, and it, it looks nothing like it did in, in 1980. We didn't have computers on people's desks back then. I know when I tell that to my kids, it's like, what do you mean you didn't have computers? How did you do things? We did them without computers. They didn't always exist. And when they first started, they didn't sit on everybody's desk, and you couldn't take them home with you. We had a department computer in automotive, and I always tell the story. And I won't tell it again because people who listen to my podcast would go crazy. But I always tell the story about the engineering company that I worked at. We had a fax machine. And when Ford Motor Company would come to see us, we would show it to them. <laughs> like it was, look at our fax machine, guys. <laughs> and the boss said, I only want two people touching this, Joe, because I was, I was the young guy, the technologist, and the secretary. <laughs> 
but yeah, we've come a long way, but getting back to it, that can the, in the warehousing world, it felt like it was way behind the times until, I don't know, the last 10, 15 years where we've all of a sudden seen, especially during COVID, where the explosion of e-commerce and the importance of your warehousing company goes from a sleepy uh, vendor to a really a strategic partner in your business. A- Amazon, a- Amazon has changed logistics and probably for the better, right? Same day, next day, everything, free shipping, almost any product with a marketplace that you can access, whether they fill it or a vendor fills it. And they've really just, they've upped everybody's game, even though everybody is not competing with Amazon. It's just expectations were set, which when I came into the industry in the warehousing piece in the in late 80s, we were very forgiving uh, SLAs were targets. They were like 95% on time. And, and again, it was a target. Come on. Did you really think we'd hit 95% all the time? Seriously, it was that kind of a business that you could get by on probably not the greatest service, uh, uh, out there. And that's probably what gave the three PL industry. I don't want to say a little bit of a black eye, but it gave it as not an aggressive, not as a zero defect, not as something. People that are pursuing uh, greatness, raising the bar on its own. Uh, many 3PLs had to be pushed and cajoled to get there, certainly prior to Amazon. That, that, that's no longer the case, obviously. Yeah. And I feel like also they're behind on technology. And it felt in the past, if you were, it could bring on a new 3PL, whether they were a warehousing company or a trucking company or th- brokerage, you had to, as you, to your point, that you had to be led by whoever you were serving. Now, I was just advising a very large company and they said, hey, we got to do this and this. And I want to make sure our 3PL can uh, keep up. I was like, dude, you're going to be you're going to be 10 steps behind them for the entire implementation. They have this down pat because it was a big company. And I always say the best 3PLs now are night and day better than than the average logistics department in inside a company because they've invested in the technology they've invested in these these functions that say you want to integrate with us boom we'll get that done overnight and that wasn't always the case it was used to be to your point conjoling begging threatening <laughs> so the the vision for third party providers through the 90s and the early 2000s maybe even to the late 2000s 2008 2009 the thinking on a lot of these big companies that outsourced Pepsi, GE, IBM, Kimberly Clark, Procter & Gamble, the philosophy was let's find the best third-party provider in each region of the country. So whether there were four regions, north, south, east, and west, or there was a central six regions, we want to find the absolute best provider in that region, and we'll leverage that. And then we'll have all these third-party providers competing with each other. We'll set the bar. It was an interesting strategy. For the time, it was probably the right strategy. Again, as we didn't push ourselves to becoming great, many of our customers who viewed us as vendors, we were vendors then, we were suppliers then, that's what we were called. They would tell us nothing more than we needed to know, and that's how they managed us. Now, that's pretty cumbersome, right? You've got four or five relationships, four or five invoices, four or five different billing mechanisms. I mean, think about all the problems that were that you would have to deal with four or five, four or five vendors providing the same ser- uh, service. And then like 2010 came and a bell went off in someone's head and said, listen, what's, why am I putting my money in five banks? And I don't really have a lot of 
pull with any bank. I'm going to put all my money in one bank. And when I walk in there, they're going to say, hey, Mr. Drapush, come on and sit down here. Don't stand in the line. You're the big guy. And so they made a commitment to partner, find the right partner, work with the partner and went from vendor to partner. Not quite strategic partner yet. I think that that started to take place probably in the mid-teens, 2015, where you went from a partner to a strategic partner, where you would be involved in actually planning. You would know what marketing was going on. You would know when events were happening. So you could plan for those events and help them push the product through because the SLAs don't change if we're doing a couple thousand orders a day or 10,000 orders a day. So that's the metamorphosis of the industry itself. And then obviously Amazon came in and then all the service levels, hey, why can't you do that? Why can they do that? And, And it really just, it revolutionized the business. The economy got great and we can morph into why we use technology today because we never used technology before. It's hard with a one size fits all for technology. The labor started to become harder and harder to get. It wasn't even a matter that it's expensive. It's harder to get when everything is booming. People don't want to work for 10, 12, $13 an hour, $14 an hour. So you're competing for a labor pool. And then as your business grows, the laws of physics don't stop existing in your warehouse. You can only fit so many people in a warehouse to get the job done. So, right, you've got to think of something else. Yep. So I want to switch gears for just a second. And I know you got a long, I was looking at your LinkedIn. You've been there, done that, got the hat. Tell us a little bit about your career. Uh, where, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you joined Amware. And uh, then I want to get to talk about some of these challenges that we've seen that required business turnaround. I got my informal education on the streets of Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> I knew that wasn't an Arizona accent. <laughs> uh, it's hard. It's hard to lose the accent. I've been gone for, for quite a while, but it's hard to lose the accent. Uh, I went to school at Pace University in Westchester uh, and, and I got my, my degree there. Uh, I started my career, as I mentioned earlier in the eighties in, uh, in, in, in trucking um, work for a couple of carriers that don't exist today. They're gone. The eighties were great times to be in trucking, said no one ever. Uh, if you recall, 1980 was when deregulation began. And so when you had a limited number of carriers going to certain parts of the country and it was restricted to only two or three carriers, the competition wasn't price-based. It was all about service. You made missionary calls, took people out to lunch and dinner. Uh, and then 1980 came in and all of a sudden you could cut rates, you can do it, you could go anywhere you wanted. Competition opened up. And so the 80s taught me how to throw nickels around like manhole covers because trucking companies were just focused on operating ratios, which meant their cost is a percentage of a buck. And so you really had to be frugal. And after 10 years of grinding that, I got recruited to come into warehousing uh, we're always bumping up against the warehouse dock to pick up. I rarely spent any time inside. Went to work for USCO for 15 years. Got to handle some great customers, as I mentioned earlier, IBM, GE. And then was always a turnaround. I stayed in third-party logistics, and my career grew from being a vice president and general manager and executive VP and general manager at USCO, running public warehousing because we ran We had public warehousing and we had contract warehousing. I got the public warehousing bit, which when I took it over, had never made money for USCO. It was always a loser. And in the space of about six years, we turned a $48 million public warehousing business into $106 million, making 16% profitability. Oh, nice. 
From there, I went to work for Kane is Able in Northeast Pennsylvania as their COO. Spent seven years with Kane is Able, and we took that company from seventy million to one hundred and forty million. That's when I wanted to leave the Northeast, the weather, the taxes, everything associated with it. Come out west, sunny Arizona, sunny California, and I went to work for Weber Logistics for four years in Southern California. I uh, was trying to get them ready for a sale. I think it was premature. Then I got involved and recruited to come to Amware Logistics in 2015 as their COO and three years later became CEO. And it's been, we went from 40 million to just under 200 million last year when we sold. Nice. So why did you come to Amware? You obviously had some choices at that point in your career. What did you like about Amware? Nothing. <laughs> so the CEO of Amware and I worked together in USCO in the 90s. Uh, okay. I, I think had some operational challenges and I've been an operator all my life. Did some sales, did everything, every job except a, a CFO job, but love operations. And he had some challenges and asked me to come to uh, Atlanta. And I wound up spending 12 hour days sitting in the center of the Atlanta warehouse in July. I think the humidity was higher than the temperature. And we took on an account that was big and challenging and almost brought the, did bring the organization to its knees. The private equity people who owned Amware at the time, Rotunda, asked me if I would be interested in staying on with them. And they made some commitments on where they saw what their vision was for the business because I didn't have a whole lot of experience with PE other than what you know about them. Could be very transactionally focused, grind the expense down. But the Rotunda group, they were interested in long-term relationships, providing good service, having a great name meant out there. And I wanted to, that I would sign up for that every day of the week uh, if that was the goal. And they were true to their word. They were incredibly supportive. And uh, I've been here since then. And like I say, through the uh, merger and acquisition of the Stasi Group, uh, which is also great. So I've been pretty blessed in my career. But it's always been true. That's a European company, right? Stasi is French-based. Yes. Fast growing, like I say, approaching a billion dollars in sales. They do about 80 million shipments a year. Amware did 17 prior to the acquisition, 17 million. So when it came to fulfillment, we were pretty big ourselves. Yeah, it's interesting. So you've spent a lot of your career in these turnarounds. And before we hit record, we were talking about some of the challenges that I, I, I talked to a lot of people in warehousing and fulfillment. And I know you're a lot closer to them, but this is just some of the stuff I've heard. We had, all of a sudden, the world discovered, the VCs discovered our business and said, hey, you know what? Somebody's going to create some technology and it's going to connect all these warehouses. And by the way, that's worked by and large. But when you have VC money behind you, there's an expectation for enormous growth. And then I think we also, so, so we had VC money come in. I would also say, you mentioned Amazon a few times, the expectations for um, from our customers went sky high. We had COVID. We have seen, and by the way, the VC backed companies tended to say yes to a lot of bad business. I think a lot of new companies said yes to bad business, only to find out that company's too small or too needy or too outside our normal business. So all of a sudden, I think, not everywhere, but you know better than I, it seems like there's a lot of companies that are all of a sudden in a bad place. And by the way, if they're in a bad place, that means all their customers are, are being dragged into that bad place too. Am I right? 
Yeah, you're definitely right. Interestingly, when it came to technology and software companies, you're right. VC would buy almost anything and everything and fund everything. My experience might be a little bit different on, on the warehousing side of the business, which was a lot more justification for the spend. Paybacks uh, was certainly there and, and backed a lot of good, uh, a, a lot of good projects for us at Amware. Tunda had funded uh, the big technology push that we had recently. And I'll, we're going to talk a little bit about technology. It's not the panacea in our business. Software is, right, a good warehouse management system, a good transportation management system with parcel routing and selection is critical. Some of the other stuff we have picked to light. We have some robotics in our warehouse now, not for picking and not for packing, but to cut down on travel in the warehouse. We actually have drones that fly drone missions at night that do inventory checks for us during the evening when nobody's in the building. So it, it looks it looks and feels very sexy, but I would say the applications are probably limited to where they really make a lot of sense. And that's how we approach it. We do, we, you know, we have voice picking, voice actuated picking. And the benefit of that is you can have it multi-language. So as the workforce changes from predominantly English speaking to maybe predominantly Spanish speaking or other languages, you can tailor your voice picking where people are getting direction through a headset in the language they understand. The learning curve is really shortened and quality goes up and efficiency goes up. And so technology used judiciously makes sense. I walked through no less than six highly automated, highly technology technological warehouses with automation that were empty looking to buy equipment for pennies on the dollar because they were over-engineered. Technology is very specific. And so if you're going to handle multi-customers and they're all different with different requirements, technology doesn't always help across the board. So you've got to, it's like a surgeon. You've got to put the right technology to the right account for the right application. Yeah. I want to take a quick time out to tell you, you can now listen to the logistics of logistics on Wreaths Across America Radio. I'll put a link in the show notes. Wreaths Across America provides informational, inspiring content about members of the U.S. Armed Forces, their families, and military veterans. Their mission is to remember, honor, and teach. Wreaths Across America succeeds because of the generous support of the trucking community. Take a listen and please consider volunteering. So, Getting back to it, it's interesting. Um, I've been around uh, automotive most of my career. And in the 80s, when I started working, the Japanese were starting to have some inroads. And all of a sudden, their people started saying, what they do is they automate. They're really good at automation. And I remember there was just massive spending on automation. And it was a very superficial look at them. And then over time, I did a lot of benchmarking for, um, it was Chrysler then, with Toyota. And uh, Toyota wanted to learn some things from Chrysler and vice versa. So we spent a lot of time together. And it was interesting. They would be very hesitant to buy new equipment. They would say, we want to use this equipment to the nth degree. We're going to get, we're going to make sure that the ROI is absolutely there. And meanwhile, <laughs> us Americans would be, oh, they, by the way, they were a lot of times Americans in, in, in Ann Arbor. And, but what we, where our heads was at is, there's this brand new product and you, you it'll do this and that. And they would be like, yeah, we're not using it until people like you prove it out. We aren't touching it. And I remember going, wait, Toyota is really slow to invest. They want to make sure it works. 
And we're so excited with the new technology. That's what engineers do. <laughs> I think that's what all people do. You get super impressed with the new technology and you go crazy. And then you buy stuff that doesn't have the ROI. And that is a killer in warehousing and fulfillment because it's not a high-tech business. It's a business of operators like you. It's an execution business. Right. You talk about the automotive industry, what pops up if you, if we were doing word analysis, I would tell you Deming and process. When I think of the automotive industry, still people dependent, less so today. Warehousing is the same way, still very people dependent, very process dependent, very execution dependent. And that's the key to greatness is reducing, right? Six Sigma was just about reducing the variability in processes. And it applies to warehousing and what people do. You have to reduce that variability. You have to reduce the number of touches. It's really a simple business. Warehousing is incredibly easy. Something comes in and you ship something out. What happens in between is unbelievable. Some of the things I've seen, what companies and people do to processes in the middle, and you talk about working against yourself, is just unbelievable. And it took the warehousing industry quite a bit of time to, to for lack of term, get its act act together. I feel, and I've said this earlier before we hit record, I feel like this would always happens with a new, uh, there's a gold rush. And with, with all gold rushes, most people lose their money. It's the people who figure it out early and are judicious in their spending make money. And But it is a simple business. I, I had my first time in a warehouse. Somebody said to me, Joe, what we do here, this box comes in, this big box. I take things out of the big box, put them in little boxes and ship them. And he goes, that is the majority of our business. Big box, little box, ship. I was like, it's a big space for that. He goes, that, the same story is basically everywhere. He goes, you got to throw some storage in there, put away and all that. But um, anyway, let's let's switch gears a little bit. You've had success at Amware, but when you got there, you said it had problems. What were those problems and how did you get it to go from, what was it, 40 million to 200 million? Because I think there's a lot of companies listening right now saying, yeah, that's what I would like for my business. <laughs> did, did I say problems? I meant challenges. Yes. Yeah. Opportunities. <laughs> opportunities. Thank you. That, that is the term. When I got there, I would say the company lacked focus. What does that really mean? We chased a lot of different things. B2B, B2C, in the different industries. In other words, we because we were 40 million and we were on a growth spurt, we would chase everything. So any opportunity, that everybody, in, yeah, let's try it. And the bigger the opportunity, yeah, let's put more resources against it. Forget about the fact that we might not have the expertise to do it, the experience to do it, but we were willing to learn on your dime if we could get that to happen. In this industry, it's very interesting. What I had found, and it's the same when I, you know, from the moment I walked in 1989 into my first warehouse, customers, when they come in or potential customers, Show me who you who else you do this for. They want to see, do you know my business? It's a box. Come on, I'm, your box doesn't look any different than the other. No, you don't understand. My business is different. So what you have to do, what does focus mean? It means taking stock of what you do well, who you do it for, use them as a reference and start there as define your area of expertise, why you exist in the marketplace, what value you bring, and when you start to focus inwardly on those things, you can sell it outwardly. And so that's the first thing we did. So you picked a, you picked some niches or niches to have any, I want to say that. So what were some of the early areas of focus for Mware? Nutraceuticals, lotions and potions, health and beauty, 
Those were industries that we had several customers, good customers, decent sized customers that would be a good reference that would show well that we could display our expertise and knowledge of that particular vertical. And it worked. That's where we started to expand out. Now we do, we do some apparel. We do some food product now, ambient. And with, when you're a company with limited resources and limited funds, you've got to focus. You've got to use those where you think the return will be, right? You can't advertise in every magazine to every vertical. So it's limited. So you spend those dollars in the place that you have the best possibility of connecting and getting a payback on it. People were tired and burned out. I would say one of the hardest working groups I found was here. And in many instances, we were working against ourselves, not on the same page, not rowing in the same direction. And again, once you bring everybody together and work it together, and this is we, what we want to do, this is where we want to go, keeping it simple, changing the culture and getting everybody to agree, it gets a little bit easier and victories are few and far between, but you build on them. And like in any sports, if I can use a sports metaphor, momentum is everything, even in our business and nothing breeds momentum, like winning new business, doing a great job, getting a pat on the back from the customer and attaboy. Celebrating wins is huge in a company. Morale is everything. You can have the best idea in the world, the best plan in the world. And if people don't buy in, it ain't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also, there's that, you're just, a lot of what you're just describing is leadership. And one of the things I was just telling somebody is I said, (laughs) I've worked for people who went through the motions of leadership and went through the motions of these wins. So they'd say, we're going to go out, we're going to do Hawaiian shirt day. And I, and, and then I remember they said, why are you unhappy with Hawaiian shirt day? I said, I've been on a lot of teams, done a lot of different things. I want us to go and have a big challenge and I want us to succeed. And then I want us to go out and celebrate. I don't want to go to game night. I don't want to wear a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> That's that kind of, and again, I call it the going through the motions of it. My dad used to call it playing house. <laughs> you, you little kids play house. They don't really have a house. They're playing house. And that is so common and I hate it. I think anyone who's been through it hates it or a leadership team that doesn't care for you. And when you say, hey, follow me, but it's only going to be good for me. Come on, let's take this hill. Why are we taking the hill? Because it'd be good for me. I'm going to get a big bonus if we take this hill. (laughs) So Joe, that was great. Listen, that's a big statement that you just made that leadership doesn't care for us. Uh, Wherever I've been, uh, I've had town hall meetings, uh, had my leadership team behind me who always tell me that everything they do is great. IT always works. Everything is fine. And you get the associates together and you ask them, what frustrates you here? What's robbing you of the dignity of doing a good job? What When you give an employee a spoon and tell them to dig a 10-foot ditch within the hour, that's frustrating, right? So finding out that associates aren't resourced properly, finding out you walk the facility and you see a piece of equipment that's been sitting there, obviously for months because oil is leaking and it's what's wrong with that thing. Eh, it's broke. We haven't got around to fixing it. Printers that don't work. You go on the tech side, scanners that are laying there, they're not charged. They don't work. When that lays around the warehouse, the message you send to employees is we don't care about you. It doesn't matter if anything works here. Don't worry about it. And that is demoralizing and frustrating. It's like walking into a, a shop with your car and tools and crap laying all around. You think this guy's going to do a good job on your car? As opposed to where everything is neat, orderly, the floor is immaculate. That's the that's where you want to go because they're not going to be having any parts of your car left over when you drive out because they're going to see them. 
as opposed to the other place. And 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 I, I'll tell you, Joe, in every turnaround aspect I've been in, what I've described to you has been in all of them. That's the message that employees see. These poor people come to work every day trying to do a good job and they don't have the tools. They don't have the dignity. They don't have the respect because they're walking over garbage. Stuff's laying around. It's not, it's just, it's not hard. Again, it's an execution business, but leadership has to execute. Yep. Yep. And all, and by the way, we are all competing for labor in a very tight mm-hmm. market. And as the baby boomers retire and we're going to be even shorter of people, I think the next generation is 400,000 people short. And as the economy grows, I always say this in my podcast, but it's true. Who is raising tomorrow's dock workers? Who's raising tomorrow's warehouse workers? We're a well-off country. Who wants to drive a truck? One of my daughter's friends years ago asked me, could you help me get a job in trucking? And I said, you can't smoke weed. <laughs> and he said, I don't. And the reason I said his mom owns a dispensary. <laughs> and he goes, I don't. And I said, you have to have a good driver. And I guess I do. And then I said, why do you want to be a tr- trucker? And he said, there's nothing wrong with doing it, but you really have to love it because it's a really hard job. And I steered him away to it. Now he works in computer security. And I was thinking, he's got a better job. We have to compete for those people. If you say, yeah, you got to come to this job and we don't give a damn and you're going to walk around eight miles a day and lift things and uh, nobody appreciates it. You're not doing it for the money. <laughs> it's not something where you're going to, and I've joked about this. How many jobs have I had in my life where it wasn't really a career? People were there saying, I'm doing this until I finish school. I'm doing this till I find something better. We can't have that become warehouse. We have to have those associates in the warehouse that'd be the first step to a supply chain career. And if we don't do it that way, we're going to find ourselves really short of heads. Many athletes take smaller contracts to work for winning great organizations. Right. To be Everybody wants to be part of an honest, great organization that knows where it's going, wants to communicate with its people, know that we're dependent upon you to get us there and we're going to work together and respect you. That's the foundation. If you don't have that, technology, anything else you do isn't going to matter. And, and, and let me make a statement about culture. You mentioned it before, you got to walk the talk. It's great to say we're this, we're that, we're this, we're that. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't change, if, you, if the equipment still doesn't work, if supervision, still frontline supervision doesn't respect its, its workforce, nothing's going to matter. Nothing will change. Yep. I want to take a quick time out to tell you about my friends over at Greenscreens. That's greenscreens.ai. Greenscreens is a dynamic pricing technology for the truckload spot market that delivers buy and sell side market intelligence to help brokers and 3PLs grow and protect their margins. Freight brokers and 3PLs using Greenscreens gain the following advantages. Faster pricing for both buy side and sell side transactions. Pricing that is more accurate and more likely to win profitable business. Guys, dynamic pricing is the next killer app. Hundreds of freight brokers are already using it because it enables them to develop faster, more accurate quotes. This is the time. Check out Green Screens in the show notes, greenscreens.ai. So getting back to it, I'm going to summarize some of this, and then I want to ask another question here. So when you came down where you said the company lacked focus, you guys were chasing a lot of different things. And that was, you had to find kind of the niches that you wanted to play in. 
as a result of some of that, the team felt confused, a little burned out, and it kind of lack of identity in the market. And I love what you said about we're willing to learn on your dime. I've advised shippers on selecting 3PLs in the past. And I always say, I just don't let them learn on your dime. And I say, because most 3PLs are just very used to saying yes, yes to everything. I was at a little 3PL and one of my sales guys said to me, hey, I found this interesting deal. It is, and I'm not making this up. He says, it's in China. And he says, it's the Yellow River. What's some river there? And he says, we need flat bottom boats and we're bringing gravel from this down the river, 10 miles. I was like, I go, are you kidding? And he's, no, I go, we do less than truckload in the United States. And he goes, yeah, people. I go, yeah, I know. And then by the way, he called the owner when I told him no. And the owner goes, you've been to China a lot, Joe. I go, I'm telling you, no, we're not doing it. We only do less than truckload. Most 3PLs get in that mode of yes to everything. I got a buddy in that business and I'll get 5%. And it's, they're more than willing to learn on your dime. <laughs> you guys don't do that anymore. We we don't. I'll tell you that. We do not. Yeah, but it is going on. And again, this is we've seen this gold rush in the space. And I think we're going to see some people, some armies are going to leave the field in the coming years. And, and I think it's the people who don't have a good sense of the operation side. Uh, the technology, everybody's adopting the technology. We're all going to use it. Stupid tech spending. Um, overspending on automation that doesn't get you an ROI, that's not going to help you. But anyway, getting back to it, what is some of the keys to getting on that right course? Identifying your strength, what you're good at, leveraging that. Good, great organizations communicate greatly. So you've got to start the dialogue with everybody in the organization, town hall meetings, tell them where you want to go, ask them for ideas on how to get there, what they think. Keep things as simple as you can. I've walked into places with mission statements that I've had to read four times and they're like the Declaration of Independence. They're this long. I would challenge any any associate to, to identify it. Ours is we help, we help growing brands grow, scalability. That's it. Our culture is five simple things. Shoot straight, over deliver, own it, stay safe and have fun. I don't even have to describe what that means. It is simple. Say that one more time. I like that. I'm going to steal that. Shoot straight, over deliver, own it, stay safe and have fun. Yeah. I always, I used to always, I send my kids text messages and I would always say, have fun, <laughs> be safe, love you. And then at some point it just became HFB, <laughs> v, v <-S> -L -U. <laughs> and And then they started sending it to their friends. <laughs> And when I have a town hall meeting, Joe, nothing is off bounds. I ask people to just be respectful and professional, but you can ask me anything you want. You can ask me my salary. You can ask me any question. It doesn't mean I will answer it. I might respectfully say not here, but there's nothing out of bounds. Let's be frank and honest because I'm going to be frank and honest. When I don't like something, the Brooklyn in me comes out. I'm very direct. <laughs> people never leave a conversation with me wondering what I said or what I meant. Um, it saves time. I, I don't mean to be brusque, but people need to feel like that's who I want to be with. I think there's a winner there. I want to be part of that. I, I want to be part of that organization. Yep. Yep. And by the way, I, I learned this when I was in automotive. I worked in a small company, my dad's company, and then I worked at some other companies as I moved up the ladder. What I realized is when you put a whole bunch of PowerPoints together and you go to see 
and um, automotive, you don't say hello without 16 slides, but the higher up you go in the organization, the blunter the talk and the less likely they are to say, I don't want to see your stupid PowerPoint. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wait a sec. I, I have to, and I get it. That's a huge organizations, but they get very blunt at the top and you never want wander out of their office saying, I'm not sure what he meant. <laughs> Well, that's, that's a good thing, right? That's why you're, you're, the, that's why you're the boss. You mentioned culture a lot. You have all these locations. How do you make sure that the culture is the same on one coast as one coast as it is on the other coast? Stand up meetings, town hall meetings. When you visit a facility, it's not to spend time in the conference room on the phone. So I could just say, "Hey, I went to Chicago, but I spent ninety percent of the time in the conference room." You're on the floor. You're talking to people. You're telling them your vision, my vision. Here's where I want to go. How are we doing here? Are we getting there? What frustrates you? Uh, handing out business cards. Call me if you have an issue. Feel free. We have an open door policy. They need to feel connected to not just their frontline supervisor, who is, by the way, the company to them. I could be the greatest guy in the world. If you don't like the guy you're working for, the gal you're working for, that's not good. You won't keep people. But you want them to feel connected. You want everybody to feel the honesty and sincerity of what we're doing. Like I say, we shoot straight. We don't, bad news doesn't get better with time. We're honest with our customers and we're honest with our associates. We just, we don't work like the CIA. We do things out in the open. We tell them where we're going. We look for their feedback and we truly want to have a family environment, which today is more important to your point. The competition for the good people is incredible. And the one thing I have found today, while I always want to hire people who currently have a job and are willing to leave it to come, the bottom line is companies will not let good people go. The, the amount of money they will pay to keep someone good, you can't compete with. Uh, I, I've seen some, what I would call crazy things, but really not crazy over the past four or five years in keeping talent in the fold. Many times it's a shame that an associate has to come to the, to their employer and say, I've got another offer. But companies do not want to let go of A players. They just will do everything they keep them. It's because the workforce today itself, we've driven that. I mean, I sat in a meeting where Jack Welsh told GE employees, don't expect your gold watch from us. While you're here, I hope we pay you well, and I hope we train you well. But don't expect your gold watch. How's, that's not going to engender a lot of loyalty. I made sure after I heard that, don't. I couldn't afford to be that. I'm not Jack Welsh. God bless him. He, what he did is phenomenal, but my philosophy is very different. I want you to stay. I want you to grow here. I want to promote from within. I want you to help me make the company better and let's win together. Yep. So what's next for Amware? I know you guys just had got bought up by Stasi. Are you guys going to run independent here in the U.S.? So the official word is yes. What's next for you guys? So they, they bought us for our infrastructure. Uh, Stasi had one facility here, two facilities in the country, been here for three, four years. It's tough to grow organically one pallet at a time. Acquisition is smart. So they didn't buy us necessarily for a headcount reduction or leadership reduction. They bought us for the leadership team. We're good at nutraceuticals, food stuff, uh, lotions and potions, health and beauty. They do very well in a different vertical, point of sale, store support. They're very big with that in Europe. Uh, there's a big market here for that print. Uh, we do some print on demand here. They probably do a little bit more in in supporting uh, soup to nuts to support a customer. 
So those are things that we will now take on and offer as a service based on their expertise. They will help us uh, learn the market. They will help us learn the nuances of of that particular segment. We'll embrace it and grow it. And so more growth is on the horizon for us and expansion into Canada, Mexico, and eventually South America. Whoa. <laughs> so you mentioned point of sale. I'm going to give my layman's view of that. Maybe you could give us a, I haven't talked to anyone who's done that in a while. Point of sale, that's the, that's might be the cardboard cutout that I see at a store. And then maybe there's some special promotion and it's on the end aisle. And that has to go into, I'll just make this up, every Walgreens in the country. And somehow someone at Walgreens isn't doing it themselves. So they have their 3PL do that. Am I right to say that? That is a segment of point of sale. Absolutely. End caps, cardboard cutouts, promotional material, handouts, posters. Yes, that's a piece of it. What about store support when you're when you're fitting or redoing a store? Lighting, sinks, mannequins, racks that hold clothes, all of that material is part of point of sale and store support as well. And they do that as well. Yeah, right now it's we're talking it's September twelfth. Around Halloween, all those stores open up, those Halloween stores, and they just seem to just they just materialize overnight and then disappear right after Halloween. It's and I always think, who's doing that? And by the way, dollar stores are the same way. I heard I saw some SNL skit that I thought was hilarious. Is they were at the dollar store headquarters and they asked, "How many locations do we have?" and nobody knew <laughs> because the infinite growth of dollar stores. But somebody has to merchandise all those. Think about Project Work, the Experimental Air Association at Oshkosh. Once a year is their moneymaker. Who supports that? The Girl Scouts, when they sell their cookies, those cookies are sold January through March. Who supports that? Yes, things like that come under the heading of point of sale and support for that. It takes a special skill set because it's short window, high volumes. So right away you think lots of resources. So so do you work with retailers on this stuff or is it all e-commerce or a combination of both? combination of both work with retailers. Our expertise has been historically direct to consumer. We made a concerted effort to focus on that maybe five, six years ago. But even the companies that we deal with that are selling direct to consumers now want to drive volume through retailers and even through the Amazon channel. So we've got to support that as well. So we, we've gone from a, an expertise and a focus of direct to consumer to now omni-channel. Now really supporting retailers, retail compliance, all those things that go with shipping to a retailer, stacking it, labeling it, ASNs the way they need to have it. And even when you're dealing with one retailer, different buyers want it a different way, gets incredibly complex. So that's opening up for us as well and something that we're just out of necessity. Our own customers are pushing us that way. And it's a good thing too, because it's a big burgeoning market where everybody thought brick and mortar was dead. Maybe not so much. I got to tell you, I ran over to Costco yesterday to get a new mobile phone. They have a Verizon kiosk there. So I was there, did, I was there only there for maybe 40 minutes, which surprisingly fast. And then the guy said, yeah, we'll ship that phone to you. I go, what, wait, what are you doing? He goes, phone will be at your house in two days. And I thought, oh, I thought you're going to take my phone and take all the information I put in my new phone. He goes, we do that and we'll ship it. And so when I got home, I looked at my email and it said, your new phone will be out here on tomorrow. And I was like, oh, wow. So 
Costco, which is in my mind, I went to Costco and Verizon. Those are places I've always walked out with my product. It has a little bit of fulfillment. So that was fulfilled in Pennsylvania. I'm in Michigan. So uh, it's already on its way. I saw it today. They had, they had transferred my information to a brand new phone and put it in a package by yesterday. I, I did that in the afternoon. It was uh, already on its way last night. So is, to your point, there is a blurring of the lines. What, did I buy something at a store or did I buy something online? Both. <laughs> you want to be able to see it many times. And then there's a generational thing too. We did a couple of house rentals and my wife dragged me to floor and decor. I got to see the tile. Mm-hmm. I got to see this. I got to see that. And the young kids today, millennials buy online. They buy tile online. They buy flooring online. My kids they buy beds online. Right. I go, how do you buy a bed online? And I, I'm like, the bedding store by my house must think I'm homeless. I was there so much. And I'm trying out all the beds like Goldilocks over there. No, that's not Goldilocks, whoever that is. But anyway, getting back to it, you guys are growing omni-channel. And you said you're going to grow into Mexico and Canada. And did you also say South America beyond Mexico's North America? South America horizon. We just opened up for Stasi. We just opened up South China, a couple of partnerships in China. We, we're, we're strong in Europe, now strong in the US, but we just opened up a couple in China. And again, we want to exploit all of the Americas. And yes, we'd like to be a dominant force here in the hemisphere. Yeah. What are the most attractive countries down in uh, Latin America to, to expand into? Brazil, Argentina. Big. You're talking <laughs> big. Talking big. We're a pop start there where the population is. Absolutely. I get it. So anyway, let's wrap this bad boy up. I'm going to lose you. I should have already lost you. Thanks for sticking around. We're talking leading a logistics business turnaround with Harry Draypush. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Give us your final thoughts on this topic. Boy, there are no final thoughts as it's evolving. <laughs> it's, uh, it, stay focused, just not to be trite. Bite the elephant one bite at a time. Take the, the hardest step. And again, I'm a cliche. The hardest step is the first one. Get yourself organized. Get your team behind you. Everything is doable and everything is possible. Just have the right vision for it and the right execution. I love it. I love it. So I like to interview smart, interesting people like you, Harry. People who are killing it in the space. Who else should I talk to? Jim Tompkins would be a great guy to talk to. Yeah, Jim Tompkins would be great. I'd love to talk to him again. Who else? I think of St. Ange because they're just, they're really strong in the consulting business. I would talk to Don Derwicki at St. Ange. All I, right. I, I've known him for 30 years. I'd love it. You connect me with him and I will talk to him. Also, before we hit record, we're talking to Jim Beerfield, who's one of your marketing guys. And he talked about this. I think it's a paper you guys are, or an article you guys have. It's the seven deadly sins of B2C fulfillment. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, link to whatever other marketing assets you guys have that Jim gives me. And oh, you guys aren't attending conferences right now. Yeah, we stopped going to conferences because again, there's more competition than potential buyers at conferences. I don't know whether people just are not traveling or not investing in it. So we do everything, white papers. The, our greatest source of information is right on our on the internet, amwarefulfillment.com. Lots of white papers, lots of case studies, which is also important to, to see who else in your shoes has been there, what they did. I would highly suggest people going to that website. and, and taking I'll a put look. a link to it. And uh, Harry, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Joe, it was my pleasure. I can't believe the time's gone by. I don't, I just feel like I started talking. 
yeah, you've got a lot to share. And again, I, I love what you guys have done. I love what you've done. You had a great career. And I think when we look at the warehousing and fulfillment space in particular, I think there's going to be some challenges. I'm sure there's people listening who are shippers who are saying, oh, yes. Because if your 3PL is struggling, if your warehousing and fulfillment company is struggling, you're struggling. They're the ones who are making uh, contact with their customers. Yeah. And I think we're going to see some see some change in the space. So thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights. Would love to do it again, Joe. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Excellent. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support's very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You have been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage with leaders in the logistics and supply chain community. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, hit the like button, and leave us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever else you listen. Also, please check out our videos on YouTube and connect with us on LinkedIn. We're very big on LinkedIn. And you can also reach us on the logisticsoflogistics.com, our website.